0: How did we get here? That's today's big question, if not the biggest question of all. And today my guests are Roy Moser Reicher, and becoming our first three-time guest, Brandon Obunyu. Roy Moser Reicher is a scientist trained in microbiology, evolution, and data analysis. For his PhD, sure, he completed a laboratory evolution of designo microorganisms, using a combination of wet lab and computational techniques to harness the billion-year-old power. Of natural selection to hone the performance of microorganisms for specific tasks. He is currently a fermentation specialist at Rosetta, working to develop new proteins and biochemistry for the production of valuable molecules. Brandon Obunyu, again, our first three-time guest, described by some as a radical collaborator, is an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale. His research takes place at the intersection of evolutionary biology, genetics, and epidemiology. Brandon uses experimental evolution, mathematical modeling, and computational biology to better understand the underlying causes and consequences of disease. His writing has appeared in academic journals, and most recently in Wired, The Atlantic, and ESPN, focusing on topics related to the intersection of science with justice and culture. Now, look, you guys know I'm But sometimes I run across a piece of research I can't stop thinking about, even if I barely understand it. Sometimes it's something that's immediately applicable to the world at large or my work here. And sometimes it's not, at least not at first, until someone explains it to me. When I first read about the work of Roy and his lab compatriots, to take this idea, a cell so stripped down to only what is most essential, a minimal cell and then to see if it would or even could evolve to survive even basic mutations with both hands wrapped behind its uh, cellular back, I guess. My first thought was, what? And second, what is, I imagine everyone else is going to respond is, dinosaurs? But this will surprise you. It's not that. Or is it? It's a lot of things, it turns out, as you'll hear. But mostly, it's profound as hell. And because I'm a self-aware moron, I also begged two-time guest, now three-time guest, Brandon Obunyu, to come back on the show to help me understand what the hell is happening here and what it means for our history, for society today, and for future breakthroughs. To help answer the question, what can you do with just 493 genes? And if the answer is not only survive, but thrive, what can we do once we know that about the building blocks of life? Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human who's working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. And along the way, we're going to discover tips, strategies, and stories you can use to understand the future and help us unfuck it. Gentlemen, welcome to the show, Roy. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Pleasure. Awesome man, and and Brandon, uh, he's back. I think you got to be our first three time guest. This is incredible news. I'm very excited.
1: Oh no, I'm thrilled, thrilled. Thanks uh, thanks for inviting me to participate in this.
0: I just got to give you a year or so in between each one. Time to, time to recover, man. Time to recover. Before we get into this uh, pretty profound work uh, that's been going on, Roy, I do like to start off with one question, and I think I've asked Brandon yes. this. We've asked 160 something guests this. Why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold and honest. Go get them.
2: Well, I can. I cannot be both bold and honest. I, I feel like that would be a contradiction. <laughs> but if I was, if I was uh, critical to the survival of the species, I don't think it's because of any technical skills that I have or knowledge that I have. I think it's because when I approach my work, I will never stop dreaming about a, you know a better, more more beautiful, conscious, radical future for humanity. And and I'll never stop dreaming about some sort of radical, open-minded, healthy, conscious, extraordinary life for myself where I can participate in that sort of future and help explore it and help create it. And I'm fortunate because, like I said, I don't know anything. I'm not even a synthetic biologist and I tried to do something with evolution, right? I'm a lowly evolutionary biologist, but I think I am fortunate to be good at solving problems. And my drive is to solve problems that connects with making the everyday lived experience of this kind of human of the future into a better one. So I think that if there is an affirmative answer to that question, that's why.
0: Look at that. Everybody always laughs at me and I get these incredibly profound answers. It's fantastic. Brandon, you got anything new to offer? Have you uh, any any reasons why you feel like you're additional reasons why you feel like you're changing the game for humanity here?
1: I mean, you want me to follow what you just said? Come on. Yeah, you know, bring it up. Come well, no, no. Hold that on. Was beautiful. You've been you've
0: been doing a lot more writing since the last time we talked. How, how's that? How's that coming into your life?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's been good. And it's, it's a real kind of technical and scholarly part of my identity now in a way that's grown. But I think, you know, what was said was was beautiful just now. And I think the only thing I would add or add, modify from what I said before is, you know, I'm talking to you now really on the, if you will, the other side of the pandemic era. And so there's just been a lot of lessons about that that we've learned. And I think w- what I've tried to be transparent about is how uh, bad we were as scientists with regards to the way that we communicated to the public. And I know that's that's a a little bit of a controversial stance because obviously, right, we weren't the problem, Mm -hmm. but I think we could have done a lot better. So I've tried to embrace that problem and a lot of the criticism I have for myself and my colleagues and kind of animate that into a real part of my scientific skill set.
0: I love that. Was it a conscious choice to go towards more sort of popular, broader outlets like Wired as opposed to mostly just research and journals and I guess more for the scientific community?
1: Well, for me, those distinctions are artificial. You know, I think those are things that that, that somebody came up with, you know, hundreds of years ago that told scientists you're supposed to do one thing and not another. Like that's not the, the original university in the original conception in the Aristotelian tradition. They were like me. They just did stuff. You just thought of something and you did it. You know what I'm saying? And so what I'm trying to do in many ways is bring us back to the older, right, romantic conception of what a scholar is. So to me, I'm doing it the right way. You know what I'm saying? I don't really think about these distinctions. I think these barriers and I think this work that we're going to talk about is a good example of that. Right. What he just said was, you know, I'm not even a synthetic biologist, but I had some questions and I can solve problems. So he got the data and the system in place and went and went after them. And that's what I'm talking about. Like that's that's the type of scholarship that I, I I find the most important. Yeah, that sounds aligned.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you both for setting the setting the table here for for I guess less about the grander why of where we're here, right? Which is which is I come back. I had this wonderful scientist on the show recently uh, who works with a lot of AI data, and, and she said she uses it. She uses uh, new tools to ask to answer old questions which I think is great. Mm. All right. Sure. So, Roy, yes. let's do this. I'm ready for give us your, I don't want to say briefest, but give us a sort of concise, not not necessarily for a kindergartner, but let's say like, imagine I'm still in middle school, high school, and this sure. sort of thing is interesting to me, but I don't totally understand it. What this research was, maybe yeah. the hypothesis and how you tested it, and why you did it.
2: Why did we do it? We did it because I think minimal models are important. And one analogy that I didn't come up with, but I think is a good one, is thinking about if you were a physicist in the 1940s and you needed to split a uranium atom because you needed to win a war. So timely. Well, how are you going to do that? Uranium is like this giant atom with like 238 protons or whatever it is. And it's really big and complicated. And so if you were an atomic physicist, you would probably start by understanding hydrogen, which is the simplest atom that there is. It has one proton. There's one electron that's going around that proton in some sort of quantum mechanical orbital. But you can kind of understand how this proton and this electron are interacting with each other and grok the basics of of what this atom is doing. And then you would probably move on to helium, where now there's two protons. So there's like some strong force interactions in the nucleus and there's two electrons. So they're kind of interacting with each other. But because you understood hydrogen, you can kind of tease apart, well, what's new? What what are the new interactions that have been added here? What's the new complexity? Uh, What effects are additive? What are non-additive? And so you can understand those new interactions separately from what you originally understood. And then you move on to lithium, which now has a third electron. It's in a whole other orbital. So there's like electron shielding. But again, you can understand what is new that has been added because you understood helium, because you understood hydrogen. So that's great that atomic physicists could do that. But in biology, biology is pretty darn complicated, and we don't really have a hydrogen. Like Even the the model organisms like E. coli or uh, budding yeast that we use to try to understand eukaryotic cell biology, these are very complicated cells with thousands of genes, thousands of proteins floating around in these cells interacting with each other. And so it can be really hard to have that sort of first principles ground up approach that will let you understand increasing levels of complexity. And especially if you're like me and an evolutionary biologist, your kind of minimal models are like these pen and paper things, like Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium that you might remember from school, where it's like, okay, this population is infinite in size, there's no natural selection, there's no migration. And from that, you can understand, okay, that's how evolution would happen in the super null model. And you can start to add in those processes one at a time. So you might add in natural selection, you can understand that, and then understand how that might interact with migration. But as soon as you introduce a real organism, that kind of all goes out the window and everything is just way too complicated. So that is kind of the motivation for studying a minimal cell. That is a cell that is not E. coli. It's a cell that has as few genes as possible while still being a bacterial cell that we can use to understand cell biology at the most fundamental level we can, as well as, in my case understand evolution, hopefully in kind of a simplest case system that will teach us something fundamental about the way evolution works. So that was the, the motivation for doing this sort of evolution of a minimal cell. Now, where it came from is that back in 2016, other scientists who are not me took a pathogenic organism called Mycoplasma mycoides. It's a, it, it infects goats. It's a pretty darn simple cell. It doesn't have a cell wall. It's like really weak. It can barely grow in a laboratory. And because it's a pathogen, a lot of pathogens have really fairly streamlined genomes, meaning they don't, they don't make a lot of different proteins. They don't have a lot of different genes because they are used to living in a really comfortable environment. They're used to living inside a host that yeah. provides a lot of what they need. And so that was a good starting point. And what the synthetic biologists at the Craig Venter Institute did was they deleted every gene that they could from this organism while still getting something that they could grow in the laboratory. So they took an organism that had about 1,000 genes, 900 genes, and they reduced it down to having 500 and you know reduced its genome size by a corresponding amount. And basically they, they tried to see every combination of genes they could delete while still getting the cell to grow and be a little bit hardy and fit. It had to basically be able to reproduce and survive a few passages in um, bacteria food. From this, they used that information to synthesize a chromosome which was kind of the novelty of the research, that they synthesized this entire chromosome and inserted it into effectively like an empty cell membrane. And that, that chromosome kind of turned on the cell membrane. And we had some sort of approximation of artificial life, which is going to have been completely different from what life was actually like 4. however many billion years ago or 3. however many billion years ago when life started. So we're not necessarily approximating the origin of life. That bacterium or whatever it was would have been pretty different. But it's an example of you, you could argue that life was synthesized. Now, me as an evolutionary biologist, I was like, okay, that's really cool, but how does it evolve? And so that's where I came in. I love it. That was a lot. I feel like I talked for a long time.
0: No, no, that's that that's the foundation. That's the thing I could that that's cool. that is one one of the parts uh, I could never explain. But also, it really it increasingly matters to me and it has for a while now the why of why people do this work and why you have to do this work. Brandon, yep. is this sort of research stuff you're tangling with at all in any way? Are you, how much are you do, talking about this uh, with students? A
1: hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, this this is, I, I really love that that articulation of the motivation, this idea of when you want to study anything, what is the fundamental kind of system that you use to build an understanding around? I mean, that's I don't it doesn't get more important than that and that's with anything that that's not just with science that's with sport that's with engineering that's with art mm-hmm. that's with anything is like you have to start with a unit and I think what I love about the work and what was just articulated is we've had various conceptions of what the basic kind of atom is mm-hmm. of biology that's kind of where, and and of all systems so you talk about the atom being the, the, the canonical thing that we use in physics and in, you know to some degree in chemistry it's more the molecule um, but in biology, it's been a war over well, what is the basic thing that we should be studying, right? And I mm-hmm. think the gene won out, right? I mean, like, like over the time, until, until recently, and mm-hmm. perhaps still, right? It was the, 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 the individual bundled piece of genetic information. That's the story. And if we understand individual things, we understand the story. And I think what has happened in the last 20 years is that we've learned that that's not quite so true. Right, it, it, it's that you know individual stories of individual genes are important, mm-hmm. but they don't tell the fundamental story of life. There's a lot of confusing things about the way genes interact and work together and sit in a genome together. And what this work has done beautifully is it's stripped the problem down right to a the most fundamental system that both values the importance of individual genes but demonstrates that they need to work together in the simplest possible genome so this is this is something i've been wrestling with in my work for a long long time and i think this is a uh, kind of a large leap forward for that reason
0: i love that so you got twitter boys talking about uh, break everything down to first principles and this and this this is literally that right did you believe how much you strip this down to the minimal cell did you believe it would survive mutations mm-hmm. because you from what i understand you even deleted the genes responsible traditionally for repairing mutations? Am I getting any of this right?
2: You're getting right everything except the fact that I did any of that.
0: (laughs) Great. Right. But the point is, is like in trying to, because before you can let it grow, however many generations, right? You have to take it down and to take it down, I guess, this minimal cell idea when you got there. So let let me preface it this way. So I actually have a little experience and I'm I'm not going to share too much, but I have a little experience with this in that my first two children were made with IVF and it took a lot of tries and a lot of failures and five different incredible doctor, scientists, nerdy, the most curious, caring people in the world. And I learned a lot about the bare minimum of when a sperm and an egg combined in those first three days and how... These things are rated, basically. Will they survive in the in those first few days to get to the point where you can do implantation? But also, you know, they give you these scales. And again, important context is this was 10 years ago and a lot has changed, obviously. What are the early indicators of sort of what is missing for viability or what might be extra or repeated there or things like this as it starts to change and then they go, okay, if you're going to put it in, you got to put it in. Well, we had a lot of failures. And then finally, we got one where they put it in. And they were like, look, on the sort of grading scale, they give it, they were like, it's not great, it's probably not going to work, but you got nothing left. So good luck. And now he's 10 and going to camp next week. So that is sort of my experience. But when it when so when we Mm -hmm. talk about like minimal cell and not able to survive mutations, Mm -hmm. I'm curious how much that played into what we want to see if it'll evolve. You know, are we is it dialed down too far? Yep. I don't know. Uh, this is I'm just. This is the part where it gets a little more organic, and I'm yeah. just trying to come at it from semi-experience.
2: I have two answers to that question of like whether I expected it to work at all. We did two experiments. One was to look at mutation specifically, where we avoided any sort of natural selection, um, and one where we wanted to understand how the cell might adapt and actually get stronger through natural selection. And I, what I expected with respect to adaptation and natural selection, I expected it to work because it it made sense that natural selection should function in any population of imperfectly self-replicating entities. I thought, you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist so I figured, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I did think it would work. And that said, I thought that evolution would be constrained at least to some extent by the minimal nature of this genome where every gene that it has is essential for its survival. So I think I've I've reasoned that that would increase effectively the proportion of mutations that would kill the cell. In any chromosome, every single DNA base pair is always under negative selection or purifying selection because most mutations are bad. It's only occasionally that there's a mutation that's good and it might not be immediately purged and might eventually be involved in adaptation, natural selection uh, of whatever organism that is. And so I, I reasoned that However, the proportion of changes that would be selected against would be really high in, in a minimal cell. So I thought that it, it might adapt more slowly than a non-minimal cell by comparison. So that's the, that's one answer to the question. Now, the other, the other thing that we did was we tried to measure the mutation rates. And as you pointed out, this minimal cell was missing some of its DNA repair genes. And so it was possible that its mutation rate would just kind of be out of control. And when we removed natural selection from the equation well so that all the mutations that occurred were effectively not really being exposed to natural selection but just increasing and decreasing frequency at random that sort of thing can lead to populations you know getting weaker and weaker crappier and crappier and but potentially going extinct and just for reference the way that we remove natural selection from the equation is by serially bottlenecking these populations so hmm. by you know listeners may have may remember from school like bottlenecks where a population shrinks down and a lot of random effects can happen there because you're just sampling like say one or two individuals at random from this population they just happen to survive not because they're particularly vigorous or fit but just because they got lucky so that's what we tried to introduce to eliminate the force of natural selection and study mutation per se so that actually as it turned out did not work at all because we couldn't even get the cells to grow on the petri plates that we needed them to so in order to do that we actually had to pre-adapt the bacteria so we did some of this natural selection stuff and then used those slightly adapted cells for this bad evolution experiment where they're getting worse and worse through mutation so that's a kind of i don't know if that's a particularly profound or interesting answer to your question but i think that's the the honest answer is that yes and no (laughs)
0: No, I think it makes sense. And again, to frame this for someone like myself, and for everyone else, and please, again, gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong. The the goal wasn't like, we're going to try to strip this down, like one of these amoebas that came out of a deep sea vent, however many billions of years ago, and see if it works. Like you said, this is by all intents and purposes and assumptions, not this minimal cell wasn't mm-hmm. what came out. There's, there's no real yeah. way to do that, as far as I understand. It was... Can we strip it of all of its, anything that's not essential, tie its mm-hmm. hand behind exactly. its back and take away anything that'll repair it and protect it and see if it'll evolve, see if it'll make it, see if it'll yep. mutate and possibly, you know, all, all those See
2: if games. it will do the Jurassic Park thing.
0: See if it, I mean, Christ, we keep coming back to it, right? God, every time, every time. Let me ask you this question. And Brandon, maybe you yeah, can please. help here. Why is no one... Asked and been able to answer this question before, which I think are two different things, and or have they this entire time? And I haven't taken chemistry in thirty years.
2: Well, one one answer to that question is so when it, this all came about the, the evolution of the minimal cell came about because my advisor saw a talk by the author of that original twenty sixteen paper where they generated the minimal cell, and he also thought you know when he heard about it he also thought hey has anyone thought about evolving these things? And kind of the response from the synthetic biologist was like why would you do that? Hmm. And the reason for that is because as a crowning achievement of synthetic biology, what they're thinking about is, is much more straightforward. Now we have these amazing tools that can can construct an entire chromosome from scratch and generate this sort of synthetic life. And now they might be thinking about biotechnological applications And like, you know, I describe myself as a lowly evolutionary biologist because that's kind of true. I think that there's a lot of important things that we can gain in the world of synthetic biology through evolutionary thinking, Uh, but it's not necessarily the prevailing milieu. So I think that's why it's not been done for a while. Although, that I said, I mean, we started this project back in 2017, so.
0: Which is everybody knows. We started pretty soon after
1: uh, it, it came out.
0: Brandon, does that ring true for you?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, you talk to the person who did the work, so you know. But I think just from from an outsider, um, yeah, I I I think that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, we've had the tools to kind of reduce genomes for quite some time, and I think we've asked versions of this question in the virus world for quite some time, right? Because cool. viruses are the most kind of reduced and bare bones. Yeah biological entities in the, in the known universe. Uh, But I think, yeah, I think this, this next step of, you know, can this evolve and how does it evolve? I mean, how does the, how do these minimal cells evolve? I think is a, a really critical one. And I'm glad that the work is done.
0: I mean, to make it at all transferable to what we do here. And I think this is why, besides reading about it, and I was like, that's so fucking cool. We try here to operate in the sense of like hey, this is what's going on, here's how you can understand it, and here's what the hell you can do about it, to help yourself feel a little bit better, but also to move the needle in some way, right? Um, and often that's, you know, as we say, like, you can't make the jet stream speed back up or whatever it might be, but you can affect, for example, climate change because it's the heat you feel on your back, it's the water you drink in your community, all these different things, right? Right. This is obviously a little less so, unless this is a field dream, but it does beg these questions that I think are important about, how did we get here, if not exactly? And what does that mean? And why is it important to keep asking that question mechanically so that we can understand the systems in place for building something better? And when I talk about building something better in this sense, again, I come at it from the practical applications-wise of where do we have systemic deficits, whether or on purpose or, or not, right? So we, you look at um, all the hubbub about CRISPR and folks say, oh, this is great, we could remove autism. And you got a bunch of people um, who have autism going, we don't necessarily want that, right? So it's obviously becomes this much more societal, complicated question, even though we're really talking about, hey, look at these cool scissors we've made to, to cut apart genes and, and switch things in and out. But it does matter. How we got here because without that you know i've been doing some reading recently on um i believe they're called cell atlases um basically how we can build sort of uh, let's see what do my notes say about this they described as detailed maps of the cells and human organs to show how uh the placenta might work with the maternal blood supply right which is something that the you know, we've had three kids. Pregnancy and, and giving birth is still really complicated. And it's still, obviously, on the society-wise, really complicated for, for some birth givers because we just don't give them enough care. Um, so, But there's also things like we have these huge shortages of organ donation uh, availability in across the world, but especially in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. So can we, you know, make kidney cells healthier? All these mm-hmm. different things. We can't do that until we understand, like, again, take it back the bare minimum and go what can this thing survive sort Mm -hmm. of what is essential and what is not I guess that just makes me come to the question of and again kind of now branching forward a little bit what not what's next necessarily but it's that rule of like okay if this then what else sort of what can be built upon the scaffolding of the work that you all have done and that Brandon's been studying forever sort of obviously that is ongoing and vital but what are the practical implications going forward? What excites
2: you? Yeah, so you know, one thing you brought up is like organ transplantation, and right, that's uh, something that synthetic biologists are working on. Synthetic biologists are working on you know a lot of important biotechnology. Uh, that so, may, so maybe the way that I can can get at the practical applications here is so what does this mean for synthetic biology and biotechnology more generally? Uh, which is you know it's, it's still one step removed. My answer to that would be, well, first of all, when you are doing synthetic biology, for example, you probably, you want your designer organism or cell to do exactly what you asked it to do and not really anything else, typically. So some sort of streamlining approach or streamlining thinking would would not be uncommon. And so I think there are implications for, well, even if you are streamlining your organism to do something very specific this work shows that you you can't stop evolution, and so you do need to keep that in mind if you're say going to you know release your your organism into the wild or uh, propagate it in, in any way now and again, maybe that's obvious me as an evolutionary biologist i'm not like i said, I'm not surprised that you can't stop evolution but an, I think another important thing is for one thing, given that the products of synthetic biology are not stable endpoints that will never change, there are opportunities in that. So for example, the minimal cell, it was really sick. It, unlike every other organism that's ever existed, it had not been honed by a billion years of natural selection. And compared to the non-minimal synthetic cell that it was derived from, it was, you know, it was terrible at growing. It took like twice as long to divide. Hmm. And, and yet through this process of adaptation and evolution, we were able to recover all of that fitness that was lost due to, you know, human fucking around. And that's not just limited to minimal cells. Uh, there's a great example where uh, of research in George Church's lab, where they took an E. coli and they recoded its entire genome. They had to like change out stop codons, so they're changing, they're having to, to mutate specific pieces of DNA across the entire genome to get it to make proteins that incorporate non-standard amino acids. So, you, so listeners probably remember that, like you know, the genetic code. There's a bunch of different pre you know DNA letter Um, Codes that encode certain amino acids, and there's 20 of these amino acids that get incorporated into biological proteins, typically. But what they did was they recoded its genome to also be able to incorporate non-standard amino acids, uh, you know, that had fun names like azido phenylalanine um, or 2-naphthylalanine, right? But there were problems with this cell too, because when you do that sort of genome-wide recoding, it comes with often. And maybe, you know, tools are getting better, but it comes with off-target mutations. So there's mutations that they didn't intend showing up all over the genome that might be hard to find, as well as just the fact that, you know, you've messed around with its tRNAs, which are fundamental to like basic cellular metabolism. And not surprisingly, perhaps these cells were really crappy, kind of similar to, to the way that the minimal cell was. And they did something very similar to what I did, which is that they leveraged natural selection to repair the lost fitness in these recoded E. coli, which what's, what's so amazing about natural selection is that they didn't have to know what was wrong with it. They could just let nature figure out what was wrong with it and fix it itself. Mm. So that's an amazing approach that let them get better uh, synthetic organisms that can do something that no E. coli cell normally could. And then bringing that back to my research, I think what we showed is that even in kind of this worst case scenario, where the cell had the least genetic material to work with. And it should have been the most constraint because we know that essential genes evolve more slowly. It still worked. And so I think there are like that, that fundamental finding, which maybe isn't even surprising, but it was important to demonstrate. I think that that fundamental finding does have important implications for how we can use uh, biotechnology to
1: improve society.
0: Brandon, you're nodding. What, what what sticks with you with
1: that? Oh, so much. I mean, I, I think, it, I think, you know, it, it was summarized really, really nicely there. And I, I think the way I interpret work like this, you know, the way my, my take on it when I read it is there is this feedback between evolutionary questions and bioengineering questions. And those two fields are kind of always, right? So anytime you make a big discovery, you're asking two big questions. It's, does this reflect something meaningful about how life arrived on Earth, mm-hmm. as we know it, and/or am I reflecting something about human ingenuity that can right manipulate and we right, right can, can we now manipulate nature in these two lists? And those are sometimes different things. So mm-hmm. some of the stuff we're doing in bioengineering ain't got nothing to do with how we got here,
0: right? Right.
1: Now, we're using the tools that natural selection delivered, which is cells and DNA and RNA and what have you. But sure. some of this stuff is not about how life happened originally. It's about yeah. what we can do to build tools to help us with disease, to help us with uh, you know, environmental you know, and what have you. And I think this is one of those discoveries that speaks to both of those. Things very, very clearly. I think it absolutely does ask questions about how what is the basic and fundamental unit of an organ like a unit of organization for how life could evolve. This is absolutely potentially a origins of life study. Mm -hmm. But it is also, as you just heard, about okay, if we want to build life from scratch, if we want to build microorganisms to help us with kind of environmental remediation, if you want to build kind of uh, organs, right? Artificial uh, cells for organs. If we want to build these things, right, This, is, these are the types of synthetic tools we can use. And I think that's really, really exciting. And I think, Quinn, you have a pretty good handle on this, but y- you really do have to be smart and careful about the way you walk from kind of a basic evolutionary question to a bioengineering one. And I think one of the things we, we can get in trouble when we sprint there, right? When we split yeah. there, right? And, and that's the thing about CRISPR. CRISPR was a mm-hmm. that is a evolved thing that microbes have come right. up with as an immune system. That's what that's the discovery, mm-hmm. right? And the problems, or I mean, it's not. I'm so I'm a you know, if you will, I'm in the relatively speaking in the. I think genetic modification can help a lot of people, right? I, mean, I, I am really much in that. It, now with some gigantic caveats, right? Of course, <laughs> right? Of,
0: course of course,
1: yeah. But what I'm saying is I think the problem is the sprint. It's the sprint to kind of crisper in human embryos and what have you. And so discoveries like this one uh, speak to both of these things. And I think the question is how can you carefully and responsibly walk this discovery about a minimal cell now into conversations about – and and, and in what paradigms do we think it could be of most immediate use? But that might be 30 years away, and that's cool. Sure. And mm-hmm. that's cool. And we got to be okay with that.
2: I wanted to agree with you, like, but it's so important to still be bullish on these technologies, right? You have, just because there's 30 years of work ahead of us, there's no reason to write it off.
1: No, not 100%. at all. And, it might be 30 years of hard work to get you to hit. Sure, right? Meaning we got to, we got to hustle and grind for 30 years. So to your point, absolutely. We, sh- we need to, we need
0: to lean in. I mean, it. so I'm finding more and more sort of transferable, I don't know if the word is, is processes or, or what, as it, as it reflects with what we are dealing with today. So for instance, the most big, it's sort of this, we have to walk before we run, but we really need to understand how we got here so that we can build something. Cause often this whole, like, we need to build a better future. Sometimes that's retrofitting what we've got. Sometimes we can do if we can deal with the incentives that have been perversely aligned the other way. Sometimes it's starting from scratch, right? And even if it's sort of the same model, like energy generation, what does that mean when we say, okay, but now we're going to get it from the sun. We're going to get it from wind. There's all these obviously different implications, but it goes in a lot of different ways. So we look at, um, like you said, with CRISPR, all of a sudden was, this is an entirely different conversation, but it's like the Kanye line, like no one man should have all this power. All of a sudden, like social media, we look around and go like, "Mm, are we really, are, are we like cool to use this? Are we in a place... Philosophically, ethically, scientifically, all these different things to just start using something like CRISPR. And it's the same thing with artificial intelligence right now, right? As sort of how it's progressing. You've got a bunch of people who are saying, we're going to sign this letter that we should slow down. Meanwhile, China's like, no, thank you. We're going to do it no matter what. And so will a million different individuals. You've got uh, President Biden getting just this week, you know, a bunch of the leaders of the sort of the seven most noteworthy companies that can build these sort of LLMs and the tools on top saying, yes, we'll agree to voluntary safeguards. Meanwhile, asking, again, that question of like, should we? And if we should, how should we? And what are the assuming that and obviously biology is the most literal definition of this, but the idea with uh, artificial intelligence has always been the alignment problem, right? Which is quite literally what we put in is what we get out. You want to know why these uh, algorithms are, are are racist or whatever it may be. It's because we're not asking the questions of, okay, but who's writing them and who's choosing the data and what's the data based on and who? why did they get to choose all those different things? And all of a sudden you've got the result of what we got, which is a more efficient way of, of how we traditionally do things as it is. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it. Last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists and policymakers and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top of mind weekly articles research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game member sourced action steps twice monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world virtual events and of course the membership slack channel look so many people come to us asking what can i do and we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer but the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com, and if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. And to me, that is, like you said, we might have 30 years of really hard work in front of us to really put these things to use at scale, whether it's genetically modifying mosquitoes. No one's saying we shouldn't try to get rid of malaria. It's a fucking nightmare. It's just because it's not here. doesn't mean it's, well, I guess it's in Florida now, which not surprising, but no one's saying we shouldn't do that. But you've got some really great ethical biologists um, who are just saying like, okay, but we have a lot of questions we've got to ask along the way of like, what does this do? What does this mean? Two and three and four and five steps down the line, not just for mosquito populations, whether it's in all these tropical places or in the parts of Africa where these kids are just still getting it all the time, but also who is going to take what we've done here and use it for something else. And, you know, we always talk about dinosaurs, but there's a million other variations of that. Um, so again, I, this is why I really appreciate this conversation because it's less about me going back and and not you know probably getting like a D ish in biology, but more just like going okay, how do I use these lessons to help our audience understand? Yes, we need to keep pushing forward. Yes, we need to do it to make a world that's healthier, cleaner, more equitable for everyone, which I guess is redundant. But also asking those questions along the way of like, how might we have gotten here, and what were the mutations or incentives? biologically or societally, along the way? And do we need to choose differently? And who gets to choose? Anyways, that's
2: my manifest. Thank you. I I, I can't add to that, so.
0: (laughs) So I look at this and I think of things like, Cancer, right? So I've been working on this. My other life, Roy, is I was a screenwriter before this and still do a fair amount of it. Mm-hmm. And I've been working on this uh, idea, which kind of got thrown for loop with all the a- AI stuff. It's really hard to write a sci fi TV show right now because everything changes mm-hmm. every day. And so you look like a real asshat if you like choose a lane for 30 years from now. <laughs> it's a bit of a pain. So this is why people do the things where they just like take cell phones out of movies or just say, like, like Dune, they're just like, we tried robots, you're not allowed to do it. And you're like, great. Well, now you don't have to deal with it. But one of the sort of plot lines I've been wrestling with is this idea of cancer as part of who we are, really. You know, there's all these external influences, obviously the environmental ones and all these things that we've brought on ourselves. But it's this idea of sort of, I, we can't cure cancer, it's a, it's 10,000 different things, right? But the choices we make about using tools like this or that are analogous to it to understand the genetic changes that happen early in cells before they mutate so that we can have tests like grails and then going, Mm -hmm. okay, but what does that mean for treatment? What does that mean for immunology and all these different things? And I wonder again, how much when you wrestle with, look, life didn't start this way, but this is a version of Mm -hmm. how we got here through the great filter, as they call that, how much Will we keep wrestling with things like this as we face big, big problems that are endemic to who we are, like cancer, besides the fancy things like CRISPR that we that we pick and choose? Does any of that make any sense at all?
2: So the reason cancer is so hard to get rid of is that, unlike most diseases, it's promoted by natural selection. And mm-hmm. this goes back to um, what Brandon was saying, is that what level should we be focusing on? Are we focusing on a gene? Are we focusing on a cell? Are we focusing on an organism? And in the case of cancer, right, we've got um, a conflict of interest between an organism and a cell that acquires some types of mutations that let it divide really fast and spread and grow, but that aren't so great for all of the other cells around it. And normally that's not a problem. You know, cells are able to work together in an organism because they're all you know closely related to each other. And so helping, you know, one cell helping another cell, right, it's still propagating its own genes. But right, a, a cancer cell has mutations. It's kind of Doing its own thing, and that becomes a problem for uh, the organism at large. So, I think that's actually a great example of a type of question that can be re- relevant to this sort of research, where we just learn more about the fundamentals of how natural selection works uh, in simple cellular systems, because that un- understanding the, the like how evolution might work at different levels of complexity or simplicity w- would be directly applicable to cancer, because. It's exactly that sort of conflict of evolution, natural selection at different levels of complexity. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what comes to mind to me as an evolutionary biologist when we think about applying natural selection to practical things in the context of cancer.
1: So your question about cancer is a very provocative one. And I think there's a lot of big debates, right, that exist, you know, seven years ago or so, I think there was this, um, I think it was maybe, you know, this debate about whether or not cancer is just a product of bad luck and there's nothing we can do with it, right, like about it, right, like, and that that emerged into a debate and, you know, in the sense of bad luck in the sense of is this just a property of the way cells replicate and... You know, and I think there's so there's a technical and statistical and nerdy question about whether that that's true or not. But part of the implications for the answer of that question that relates to what you just mentioned, Quinn, is about our funding and the resources that we put into it. And one of the kind of meta questions there was, if this is something that's just a part of who we are, why there is enormous research resources into cancer right now and i'm not here to say whether or not that's a good or bad idea i'm just constructing right the landscape which is if it's right because i mean we've all had people affected by it right so you know i'm not here to say that's not good and there's a lot of brilliant people doing brilliant work in that paradigm friends and colleagues of mine but part of the question is whether that's a good use of funding that's actually a relevant question and that's also a relevant question even in the biotechnological space right So money and resources and time and training for young people in particular is not infinite. We have a finite amount of labs that we can train young people to think about the problems of today and tomorrow. And if certain diseases are just the sort of thing that either we care about more in the West or we care about more because we're living longer, which is also true, or we care about for all these kind of boutique reasons – Then perhaps we should be redistributing our intellectual resources and our right as well as our financial resources towards a broader set of questions. Now, how does this connect to what's going on in this conversation with the minimum cell and what have you? The way that plays out is, all right, maybe we just need to be asking and answering fundamental questions about the way life works. Because darn it, the argument there is that one is the one that seems to develop, deliver the practical solutions. (laughs) Right. It's actually when people are tinkering with nature in a fundamental way that you actually identify the best antibiotics <laughs> and right, right and, and the tools that actually help us understand disease and the two right. So I, I, again, I don't, I try not to like you know the polarization that has been amplified in the in the social media era. I, I dance, I I don't participate in it because no answer is simple. It's always going to be complicated. And we need to learn to live with that complication, right? So I'm not throwing my weight behind any one of these things, but it is a real debate. And it's one that I animate in my laboratory. Like, so when students apply to my lab, I have a finite amount of time and resources that I can put in to them answering questions. I work on disease. And so my question is, do I want to steer them towards minimal cell style questions? Or do I want to steer them towards how the hell can we get rid of Vibrio cholera, right? Sure. It's tough. It's tough. And I yeah. think this is going to continuously be the dance. But what I will say is this, this minimal cell research and work like this, it emphasizes why I think ultimately that's the best thing humanity has. It's our ability to tinker and ability to explore. And I think we have to support basic research like this because ultimately this is where the best solutions shake out. I feel like.
0: Well, and also everything comes from that, right? We can argue about, let's see, so you've got the tree of the this minimal cell, whatever version, right? Imagine this was, let's just say, this is how it started. And Roy's like, oh my God, I figured it out. Great. Um, and then you've got 7,000 trees of different research and different diseases and all these different things from microplastics to air pollution, to smoking, to, to just, like you said, is it bad luck? All these different things. There is... In this sort of infinite landscape of, of research and testing and treatments and all these different things we can do, the scope is finite, but we can't do any of it until we understand the basic stuff, or we can't do this better <clears throat> until we understand the basic stuff, right? We go back to, hey, part of the reason it turns out why all this all this RMR research has been failing for the past 15 years is because so much of it has been based on doctored images, right? We, everything kind of grows in this tree from, from here on out. Um But at the same time, like you said, your lab, and specifically you, have finite time each day, each week, and over the course of your career and your life. And I think, again, sort of moving to how society, which is on a bit of a ticking clock uh, with with something like climate change, um, uh, and and potentially AI, but probably not in the way we think, but in the sense, how do we as a society or as a policymaker... Apply ourselves? Where do we choose to use our political capital or societal capital? But also, how does each of us in our time here use it? Because you can't do it all, right? We can't do it all. And it's easy to say, no one cares about how we got here. It's how we go forward. It's like, well, we keep kind of fucking things up that way. And also, like, this is why we're here. And there's a lot of good about why we're here, and there's some not so great. There's a lot of inequities there. But at the same time, it's funny because, you know, we're building this thing out. that I, I'll share with you, you guys offline. And it turns out I'm this pagan atheist religious studies major from a liberal arts college who, who didn't do well in biology and all these different things. But I grew up reading Wired and Popular Mechanics and Star Trek and all this shit. And, and I, I care about these things. But it turns out the thing that I am best at is not carbon removal or clean energy or hunger or food or biology and other things, it turns out over the course of this work so far, it has been taking all these generalizations and the religious studies of why do people do what they do, which is basically why I did it, and political science, all this jazz, nonprofits, best friend died of cancer. How do I help? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a doctor. What people come to us for and what I can do is help them answer the question, what can I do? And you can phrase that a bunch of different ways, it turns out. You can say, What can I do? Which sort of implies that you don't have a lot to offer with this particular thing. When my friend was dying, I was like, I I don't know how how this cancer works. I don't know how to help him. I can't do anything. But I can sweat so I can raise money and give this to doctors and researchers and maybe it'll help. It didn't, but maybe to help somebody else. But you can also say things like, what can I do? Which implies like, I want to help, but I don't know what to do. It's I, I have all these interests and I have these skills, but I don't know where to apply them. What we do here, it turns out, is sort of do all the work that we possibly can to find the most reputable ways within the scope of my career and my life to help people of a huge variety of backgrounds and interests and skills apply that question in the most reputable way possible of what can I do. So, Roy, you come to me and you say, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and that's what I'm really good at, and this might be this other thing I'm into, right? Or you've got Brandon, who's like, I do all these incredible things. I also write for Wired. Also, my Twitter name is Big, De- Big Data Kane. Like, this is it. And then I can point you towards 7,000 things you can do within that Venn diagram. And that is this idea of how I've realized I can use my finite bandwidth as much as I can. So, again, I know this is not a question, which is the worst thing about a QA is when someone doesn't ask, ask a question, but it's, I'm ready for you. Me trying to find this way into the nerdiest research, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, I talk to these incredible pediatric cancer researchers and they're like, oh, well, we we figured out how to do it uh, by using zebrafish. And I'm like, I don't even know where you buy zebrafish. How, however much less like you involve them in cancer research. And that's great because mm-hmm. kids shouldn't get cancer. Fuck that. That's my answer. And I will help you however I need to. But This is all saying, like, this has been really beneficial to me so far because it helps me understand we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time if we're going to make different choices going forward and more effective choices going forward about how we help the most people and help the most ecosystems so that this thing is a little more solid for more people going forward. That's my interim assessment.
2: Since it wasn't a question, uh, I'll say my response to that idea, what comes to my mind is the way that the minimal cell evolution research demonstrated to me the importance of understanding fundamental simple systems as something that I can do. Because one thing that turned up as I was doing this research was that pretty much all of my predictions were wrong. Even though this was supposed to be the simplest possible system, we had no idea how how it actually worked. So for example, remember how I said, it should be more constrained because we know from Mm -hmm. evolutionary biology, we look at organisms in the wild, we know that um, essential genes evolved more slowly. So I expected the minimal cell to be slower at adaptation. turns out it actually adapted faster than the non-minimal cell. And you can hypothesize why that might be, right? It's starting from, you know, a worse place, had more adaptation to do. Its genome was all messed around, had never been exposed to natural selection before. So there's all these kind of new, perhaps, uh, protein interactions that are are going on inside that cell that can now be optimized. Mm -hmm. The basic prediction was completely wrong. And... Thinking about mutation. It turns out these bacteria have the highest mutation rate of any known bacterium. Hmm. In retrospect, I can see some features of the organism that could lead to the evolution of a high mutation rate. But given that that could have led to population extinction, that was also kind of surprising in some ways. We also uh, observed that one kind of fun finding um, when we looked at the we we tried to understand the like the physiological and genetic mechanisms of adaptation in the minimal cell. And it turned out that the the non-minimal cells, so so we we did these, we did evolution in parallel, just to be clear, mm-hmm. we compared mm-hmm. the non-minimal cell to the the minimal cell when we did this adaptation. And we found that the non-minimal cells became giant during adaptation, which is something that has been observed before uh, in other experiments like this, say with E. coli, where they've adapted it to laboratory conditions, the cells get bigger. It seems to be adaptive in the in, in in this, in a laboratory environment, given the way that the the evolution is happening, but the the minimal cells actually did not change in size during evolution. And what was really interesting was that this was the case despite the fact that they both minimal and non-minimal cells were getting mutations in a specific cell division protein. So perhaps you could see why changes in, in a cell division protein could lead to giant cells. But interestingly, despite being very similar types of mutations, it had a completely different effect in the minimal and the non-minimal cell. In both of them, it was adaptive. It made the cells more fit. But in one case, it increased the size of the cells. In one case, it didn't, which demonstrates how important this sort of genome, you know, what genes do you have? That context affects what mutations in a certain gene might do to a cell. And that was something we could never have predicted. Now, is it known that that type of gene-gene interaction exists in organisms? Of course. But coming back to, to my point of that, we, we really had no idea how even this minimal system worked. I think it shows that you know, th- this type of basic research was, was very instructive um, in a lot of surprising ways. So ho- hopefully that has contributed to what we can do next.
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate that from the perspective of We have to keep building or rebuilding and challenging these assumptions of, again, how we got here and how things move and change, especially something that, again, you go back to the ridiculous Jurassic Park analogy, it should have been pretty evident when they're watching the thing and my 10-year-old just got to watch it for the first time, he's losing his mind. You know, they go in the little thing and the character's talking to him on the screen. They're like, man, eh, then we threw some fucking fog, Dean. You, you should have stopped and been like, well, there's your first question mark. Life found a way because you fucked around with it, right? But life also finds a way. But it's helpful to keep dialing it back because, again, uh, the analogous example is like, it, we know that if 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 statistics we're going to get it done, we could probably be in a different place. We know that 8 million people a, day, a year die of from indirect and direct air pollution exposure. 8 million people a year. Like that's just outrageous. And not only we have we not said like, holy shit, let's stop all that immediately. It's still incentivized and subsidized in in, in most parts of the world, including here. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep doing it so that we can understand it more and build better systems on top of it. It's the idea of like, It's better to know what you say no to as opposed to say yes to, right? When you're trying to, like a sculptor, taking something down to what it is. We know we just absolutely cannot do fossil fuels anymore because these are all the manifold ways, whatever the opposite of co-benefits is, that it affects us, right? So understanding those things more and more and more is important. It's not like we've stopped research on air pollution because we know how bad it is, right? So to me, that... As much as it's, I get excited about going. Like, what's next? What do we build on top of that? I get so excited about this because we still really don't know how a fucking brain works. You know, (laughs) like it's it's easy to be like, oh well, I had some migraines at one point. I remember going to this neurologist at UCLA, and she was like, nobody knows this better than me, and I don't have a fucking clue what's going on with you. And you're like, I appreciate the (laughs) like how humble she is and you know candid about this because that's also kind of exciting. It can be terrifying, but it's also kind of exciting. But it just implies we have so much more work we get to do.
1: So much good stuff there. What I'll quickly add is, I think, you know, to integrate a couple of the things that I just heard, there is a way for a what's next that is, like I feel like, appropriately ambitious, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the sense of, This study, to me, makes me think if we can make a minimal cell, right, and we've kind of achieved that and we've demonstrated the minimal cell can evolve, it makes me think about, all right, well, what are others? Is it one species of bacteria? How does this look like in other cells? And this is obviously what's happening next. And I think you can ask you know, the, the people who've done the work. So I think this whole new paradigm of questions about what is the minimum and basic number of things you need to make blank work, I feel like is it a smart way to do biology as a whole, right? So I can now take that perspective and walk it into metabolism. Right. You, know, if, you yeah. know, I can now walk it into neuroscience. And I think this is why people study C. elegans, right? Because they, have, you know, the small number of genes mm-hmm. and, and even as a system in neurons and Drosophila. So I think this minimal approach is something that we can walk into a, a bunch of other systems. And I think we will continue to learn important things that can then be animated for practical use. But to go back to something you said, Quint, you know, in terms of what your role is here, and I think what what the use is, truly, I believe people like me and people like other scientists because of the way science is taught we have a limited vocabulary to be able to see all of the uses of what we do i think the you talk about being bad you know being a d student and so i don't know if that's true but 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 the part of the problem with science education is that it prunes a lot of the creative people and Mm. I've, i've been saying that for years, many, 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 many years. And my defect was that they didn't prune, that, that they didn't prune the sci-fi nerd out of the <laughs> science. Right. Okay, that, that's what they didn't do. And so what I'm saying is, and so what we actually need, I think the practical questions have already come from science fiction. They've mm-hmm. all, We already have practical solutions for things that came out of what we did, and that came out of all kinds of things like that. There are already inventions that came into that. And so what I'm saying is these spaces Because no disrespect to my science colleagues, but they're not the most interesting and creative people when it comes to the the uses, and this is why their ethics are bad, right? Because they don't know how to think about people and society very well. So what I'm saying is spaces like yours and stages like yours that bring this work together, right, I think are going to be the critical thing we need to really make that – Important next step between the right the, the, the these intriguing basic science discoveries and what the next uh, and, and some of the, the, the practical applications that will happen in the near future.
0: Well, I mean, I appreciate that, and, and I, I don't want to keep you guys too long, but th- that is where it really comes down to. And again, is and that wasn't uh, again. I wanted to have this conversation and, and reached out to both you just because it was so fascinating to me. But all along the way in researching it and thinking about and preparing it and having this conversation um, is. Again, I keep coming back to someone out there is listening to this, whether they are in marketing or they're a student or they run a family office, they're an investor, like whatever it matters, they're a musician. And there's some part of them that's going, I'm really into that. And I don't know how the hell to find my way in. But how do I like find even if it's just like, what is the next thing I read? What is the next conversation i listen to? Whatever it might be. But there's other people who are going like, shit. Maybe I want to be a scientist. I mean, we all know the person who the people who went to college are like, I'm gonna be a doctor. And six weeks later, they're like, fuck that, I'm into Buddhism. This is fantastic, you know, and their parents flip freak out. And it's like, but that's great. They were, they were cold for some sort of reason, right? They're pruned for some sort of reason. And I mean, thank God science didn't prune you out, right? I mean, it's like we we have to have that perspective. It matters so much, and that's why you're able to do this incredibly influential writing now. Um, you know, to reach out to more people, because you're not just in the lab, like, like so many folks. But we need more of that because we need every time you see everyone's cheering for Mark Zuckerberg this week. Holy shit. How did that fucking happen? Right? Because the guy just copies Twitter. Everyone's like, he's great. Look at him. He can, he can water ski now. And you're just like, we don't have a democracy anymore. <laughs> but like, holy shit. And part of that is because, look, I don't know how to build these things. I'm not a front end developer or back end or engineer, but I know there should be a chief liberal arts major in every one of these boardrooms going like, hold on a fucking minute. <laughs> like, What are the implications of us doing this? And I don't think the implications of understanding how a minimal cell goes 2000 generations or doesn't, and it fails at any stage along the way, is going to bring the whole place down. But it could make it better. And the more people I think they're exposed to these things while seeing the broader, more surface level integrations as you were, or applications, for just theories or ideas, I think maybe that's what brings along more of these. Um, hey, wait a minute. Have we ever thought about even just asking a question like that in this space? So that's where I kind of come at all this stuff. I have a last set of questions I ask everybody. If either of you have anything else you want to add to this particular, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Roy, anything else you want to close with before we get you out of here? I could do this for hours, but you two have actual jobs. So I'm not going to do that.
2: I, I suppose I, I just shout out my company, Arzeda, right? Like, yep. So we're a, a protein design company. We use synthetic biology to make proteins and enzymes that hopefully we can produce in you know in a more efficient way than, than is being done at present, we have partnerships with like, home care goods, with uh, you know, food products. And I think what's exciting about working in synthetic biology, as well as coming from my background and, and thinking about things the way I think about them, is everything f- from an evolutionary perspective becomes an optimization problem. And I think there's a lot we can learn from these sorts of, you know, like I was saying about the, you know, the re- genomically recoded E. coli, that kind of uh, research I think can be applied in, in a synthetic biology context and really can help us make better shit. <laughs> That's about all I got, I guess. It, it's just that I, I, I'm trying to, I'm ho- hopefully, I'm trying to emphasize that even though this was, you know, some silly evolutionary biologist looking at a synthetic cell and being like, "Can we Jurassic Park it?" I, I think that we actually learned a lot from doing that, and uh, I'm excited about how we can apply what we
0: think. I appreciate that. It does matter. It does matter the questions we ask, but who gets to ask them and why do they ask them and where are those tr- sort of ideas of, of asking fundamental questions, whether technically or the- theoretically. Um, it really does keep adding to this conversation of how do we build something better and and also more stretch and like just fucking cool. Like, fuck, there has to be room for that shit too. Besides just like the basic fundamentals sure. and doing better on those things. Yeah, yes. Everyone needs clean water. Of course. Like let's fix that shit. while we also do the really cool. So I really appreciate that for both of you. And Brandon, I don't know if you answered this last time, but uh, time has passed. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Just a brief moment to kind of, Call them out because none of us are doing this alone. Either of you can go for,
2: it. for me. It's it would probably always be an answer like this. For the past six months, I would say my co-high at work. So I you know I started work in, here at Arzeda in January, same day as a more junior associate scientist. And it's always from you know, someone who is potentially one you know, supposed to be one's mentee. I find that you know I always learn more from them than I could ever hope to teach, and so. That that's been you know that was the case in grad school working with with undergraduates on this research, and that's still the case now. Uh, so, thanks, Lexi. I
0: love it, Brandon.
1: Yeah, I mean to stay within the spirit of the show, talking about a minimal cell. It's not going to be an individual. It's going to be an institution because I mean. So that's been my kind of minimal cell with regards to the thing that's empowered me the most. I was elected to the uh, external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute a year ago. And uh, I, I'm incredibly indebted to that place because that it's like you you're old enough to remember the the blind melon video with the uh, with the B-Girl, wow. you know. And that's how I feel. I feel like I feel like I finally met my tribe of people who think about the world in the way that I think about it. And they empower me to do so. And I think it's my unusual way of doing so. It's not unusual there. And so without them, I, I think it's allowed me to lean into kind of my multiplicity. And in all aspects of my work, from my lab work to the other stuff has has been amplified because of it. So I would thank them.
0: I love that. Do you guys know this scientist? And I apologize because I don't remember his exact discipline. Carlo Rovelli. Have you heard about this gentleman? No. Wrote the the book on time that's very small. And I just keep highlighting it. And I feel like a conspiracy theorist talking about it all the time. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. But he wrote this other piece just to sum this up and kind of come back to the question we just asked it's called The Big Idea, Why Relationships Are the Key to Existence. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read this quote from it. I use this uh, app called Readwise that sucks in all my highlights, and, and I can come back to him. And he said, perhaps there's no need to make anything up about what lies behind quantum theory. Perhaps it really does reveal to us the deep structure of reality, where a property is no more than something that affects something else. Perhaps this is precisely what properties are, the effects of interactions, A good scientific theory, then, should not be about how things are or what they do. It should be about how they affect one another. And I love that. And I thought about that while reading about all the mutations that happened and didn't happen and all the evolution along the way, because none of us evolve in in isolation here or get better. And I am the product of and. 63-ish conversations. Uh, so I, I appreciate your time and everything you you guys are bringing to this wide range of, of research. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Got any, uh, I, I heard there were three questions.
0: Oh, that's right. Uh, oh yeah, this is always my favorite one because then it just demolishes the rest of my list. What's a book you've read uh, in the past year that has opened your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before or has actually changed your thinking in some way? we got a whole list up on Bookshop. I'm going to get you guys out of here.
2: I'm currently reading Stolen Focus by one of your uh, previous guests, Johan Hari. Um, yeah. And certainly that's a good book so far. If I had to pick one, um, w- one book that has changed me in the past year is The Ghost in the Shell by Shiro Masamune. I read the, the original, the classic 1991 cyberpunk manga. And the reason that opened my mind so much is you know, something that's written in, in 91 set in 2029 and just the the perspective shift that that requires and you know made me think you know what what sort of dreams were totally wrong what sort of dreams were totally spot on the fact that um, I'm still dreaming about some of the same things of yeah you know, mm-hmm. com- computer brain integration uh, just a- as one example um, but I'm not really I don't know I'm not super hot on radios these days and, and the way it also made me think well so what what you know, if I was writing a cyberpunk manga right now, set 38 years in the future, what it would look like and what would I be incredibly wrong about? Um, so I, I would say, I don't know how many fiction manga there are on your book list, uh, but
1: th- that changed, that, that's a book that changed me.
0: I love that. That's a classic. Now I'm going to go reread it again. Brandon, what's on your list?
1: Oh gosh, so much, but I'm, I'm reading The Dawn of Everything by David uh, David Graber and David Wingor, which is just a massive and titanic rethinking about kind of. Everything. So it's one of these grand books about kind of how, you know, the, the social order and the diversity in I mean, societies that has been taken for granted. And like you, I think about how I, I think what's important about the book is we just have this impoverished view with regards to the possibility within the human species. We think there's the narrow view. And frankly, biologists are partly responsible for this, frankly. Right. This narrow view of kind of what a person is and what a society is and the way it should be structured, that it's been this physics that just grows and grows. And all of a sudden everything just flowered in Europe and everything's been been great since that they kind of gave us. civilization It's just not true. It's Mm -hmm. never been true. And I think this book kind of really, really does a beautiful job of articulating just how uh, how diverse the scope of human structure has been through time. So I'm enjoying that.
0: I love it. I'm not kidding when I say my mother-in-law gave me that for my birthday in November and is still sitting at the foot of my bed because it's so big. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to set aside some real time to do this. Oh yeah. <laughs> Roy, and this could be anything. We've had um uh, people talk about running for fifth grade class council. We've had people who yeah. lost somebody, it could be anything. Um, the first time in your life where you felt like you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, and that is up to you on how to define
2: that? Defined in the boring way, I would say that when I started work at Arzeta, because I felt like, you know, you've been in grad school for years and years, doing stuff in academia. And yeah, it's cool, synthetic, minimal cell stuff. But, you know, it was, you know, at the, the end of my first week here that I felt like, wow, okay, now now we're working with gas and doing something important. But I don't think that's the, I think that the, the best answer I have is that there's actually a lot of those moments that are, more personal in nature, right? Where you finally understand something in your psychology that was holding you back. And you finally access that kind of, at least for me, the sort of vibrant, infinite feeling of love that drives you to do meaningful work. And those are the moments where you go, oh shit, oh my God, look at what lies before me that I can do. I love that. That's my best answer.
0: I love it. It adds up. Brandon, if you got anything else you want to throw at it, go for it. But that's awesome. Gentlemen, that's it. I I can't thank you enough. Um, This has been fantastic. Thank you for all your research, your time. Thank you for listening to my rambling. I will endeavor to cut mine down, but the rest of yours is just fantastic and enlightening. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for coming back. I'll call you in five years to make you do it again.
1: Uh, We'll do it sooner. We'll do it sooner. Roy, thank you. It's a pleasure meeting you. Likewise, Brandon. Seriously, privilege
0: uh roy thank you so much really just so so cool to see i love the question of like what if i think that really matters whether we're looking forward or back so uh thank you gentlemen that's it important not important is hosted by me it is produced by willow Beck. it is and edited by anthony luciani and the music is by tim blaine uh you can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast combos at importantnotimportant.com slash subscribe. Uh, we've got t-shirts and hoodies and coffee stuff at our store. I'm on Twitter at Quinn Emmett. I'm also there at, uh, what is the new one? Blue Sky, whatever it is. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Search me or important, not important wherever you want. Uh, you can send us feedback or questions or guest suggestions, whatever you want uh, on Twitter or to questions
1: at importantnotimportant.com. That's it. Thanks for giving a shit.